This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. This is another episode that I've recorded with Katrina Hale, the surrogacy counsellor who is based in Sydney. Katrina and I went really deep in this episode and talked about traditional surrogacy, which is surrogacy where the surrogate also provides her own egg for the conception. Traditional surrogacy is not as common as gestational surrogacy in Australia, but it is legal for the most part in most states. I recommend that if you are considering traditional surrogacy, that you uh, find out about how the laws apply in your state and make sure you've done uh, counselling beforehand and obtained legal advice. I've got some information on my website about traditional surrogacy and if you have any questions, by all means, get in touch. I'm going to hand over now to Katrina and we will be talking about traditional surrogacy and specifically about home inseminations. So Katrina and I are going to talk about traditional surrogacy and as a sort of broad overview, traditional surrogacy is legal almost across Australia. Um, There is uh, the ACT where traditional surrogacy is not currently legal. For the most part, traditional surrogacy arrangements happen outside of a clinic And there's a number of reasons for that. But generally, a traditional surrogacy arrangement is the same as a gestational surrogacy arrangement in terms of everyone getting legal advice. And there might be a written agreement for the most part. And then everyone also accesses surrogacy counselling. And the, the only difference then is that there's no IVF involved and that it happens through home inseminations. So I was a traditional surrogate, so I can talk about that from a um, personal perspective. But Katrina is also going to go deep and talk about all the awkwardness of traditional surrogacy, which we all want to hear about. So perhaps we'll start with that, Katrina. Why is traditional surrogacy so awkward and what can we do about it? (laughs) Well, so I call it a a healthy awkwardness. So often people think, uh, you know, when I talk to them about traditional surrogacy, they go, oh, it's going to be so much simpler. Uh, you know, it's, it's like we're not going to involve an IVF clinic. The surrogate's not going to need to go through, you know, hormone treatment or medical procedures. You know, there's going to be less red tape and paperwork and, you know, people in white coats involved. It's going to be so much simpler. Uh, but it actually brings along with it a whole new set of complexities because when you do IVF, it's very medicalised. It's, it's very clinical. Uh, you know, you you take away so many of the intimacy, you know, taboos, you know, and boundaries. Like it's a, if you think about surrogacy, what we're trying to do is get pregnant. How do people normally get pregnant? They have sex behind closed doors. It's a very intimate private act. So IVF turns the the spotlights you know it's like takes away you know all that romance and intimacy uh you know and and taboos around sex because it becomes very very clinical traditional surrogacy and home insemination brings back (laughs) those taboos and intimacies and relationship boundaries and primal instincts in your lounge room so uh, uh you know but like i say it's like a you want it to be awkward. It's like the awkwardness that people feel around uh, traditional surrogacy is a healthy awkwardness. It's there as an indicator that you are you know, dealing with taboos and intimacies and boundaries and primal instincts and sort of you know, entering into this sort of altered dimension uh, with the purpose of 
a surrogacy conception. So you don't want to try and take away the awkwardness. You want to embrace and welcome and celebrate the awkwardness um, because that's an indication that you are in a healthy surrogate relationship. If it wasn't awkward, think about what that would mean. Okay, so four people get together in someone's lounge room and there's slightly you know, unusual, you know, there's, there's acts of a sexual nature which take place, even if there's not direct copulation. You know, it's like we're verging on the territory of swingers. Uh, so, we're, so we're not doing surrogacy swingers. You know, we're doing a traditional, <laughs> traditional uh, surrogacy arrangement, um, you know, with a home insemination. Um, so, yeah, we don't want it to be sexy. You know, we don't want it to feel normal. We don't want it to feel natural. We don't want it to feel comfortable. We want it to feel awkward because the awkwardness is a recognition that we have the intimate relationship of the surrogate, potentially, you know, presumably with her partner, and the intimate relationship uh, and, you know, bonding and connection, you know, of the intended parents. So, and that generally that intimacy doesn't cross over <laughs> in terms of who interacts sexually with who. But because we're dealing with things like genitalia and sperm, and bits coming out of one and going into another, that, that's, in the, that's in a sexual realm, okay? Um, so, yeah, so therefore, we're doing this sort of strangely intimate thing, but it's, yeah, a whole a different meaning and purpose. So, yeah, healthy awkwardness. Uh, I think over the years I've probably referred to traditional surrogacy as being the same as gestational surrogacy, except it doesn't involve an IVF clinic. It involves a lot of wine. And I think you're right. Like it would be kind of weird if there was no awkwardness. I mean, what, what relationship have you got if it's not awkward that you're home inseminating between a, potentially like a gay man and a surrogate who would otherwise have no other intimate contact yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. So, so some of the, yeah, some of the boundaries that can come up, um, like say we've got uh, heterosexual IPs. So uh, they need to use surrogacy uh, because of the uh, woman's infertility. So again, you know, there's, there's her relationship with her male partner where they've had sex. It hasn't worked. You know, she has been unable to uh, yeah, fall pregnant or carry a baby. For women, there's massive identity issues that come with that. There's you know, massive you know, grief and loss and trauma and sense of self and sense of identity that come with that. You know, women can feel like a failure, okay? So then her husband goes, or male partner, goes and gets another woman pregnant. So, uh, you know, intended mothers can feel a sense of jealousy, a sense of betrayal, a sense, you know, that her husband is, is actually going to leave her, uh, you know, and, and go, you know, want to be with the surrogate because the surrogate has what she doesn't. The surrogate can give him a baby, which she can't, you know, so it can bring up some very deep feelings uh, for intended mothers, you know, a sense of betrayal. 
So uh, there's a, you know, another interesting taboo, which often gets sort of glossed over, it gets dismissed a bit. And that's how the, uh, the surrogate's uh, male partner feels. Uh, often, often the surrogate's male partner or husband, you know, has a very strong primal, you know, visceral uh, response to the, the thought of traditional surrogacy. And again, this is around intimacy, pair bonding, taboos. It's like, you know, the, se the sexual act, you know, they don't call it making love for nothing. It's like there is a, a, you know, a, a territoriality. You know, it, it's like having sex for a man, you know, having sex and placing your sperm, you know, ejaculating your sperm into a partner. It's an act of love. It's an act of intimacy. It's an act of vulnerability. So it's, it represents, you know, it's like you do that behind closed doors in your bedroom, presumably, up to you. Um, but it's like you no, nobody's doing that with other people uh, based on, we're presuming a, you know, monogamous heterosexual relationship here. Um, but even in a polyamorous relationship, there's rules and, you know, there's very clear boundaries and negotiations around that, you know, of, of how that takes place. So now we're bringing in a male external to that uh, relationship and we're going to put his sperm in, on, inside the woman. So that can feel like a violation. That can feel like infidelity. That can feel like betrayal. That can feel demasculinizing. It's like, you know, I had a surrogate who sort of mentioned there was almost like a, a reclaiming process um, that that sort of happened between them uh, post-traditional uh, surrogacy situation. It was like a, you know, a reconnection, a rebonding, a repartnering, a reconsolidation of their relationship through making love. It's a, it's a very intimate sphere. Um, Can I ask about also... that and the, the dynamic with the surrogate's partner? Because I know that lots of surrogates, but particularly traditional surrogates, will be asked, well, how did your husband or your partner feel about that? And often the answer is, well, he doesn't own my body and he was fine with it. Or maybe it was a bit awkward, but he was all right with it. But on a deeper level, actually, like what you're saying, it's actually not as simple as that. It's not just a matter of him being okay because it's not his baby and he doesn't want another baby. That there is that sense of my territory has been invaded here. Is that just something that we have to deal with? Is that something that will you ever have a bloke that doesn't feel like that when his partner is a traditional surrogate? So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it very much comes down to, to personality and degrees. So for, for some, some men, they might not relate to that. You know, they might not feel that. Some men might recognise it, but it's, you know, they, they can deal with it. For some men, it is overwhelmingly strong and they just despite them recognizing their partner's body bodily autonomy and wanting to support that they just can't do it uh and and again it, you know if we, if we look at uh, around that we could we could have two people in a relationship one person wants to have an open relationship that's their bodily autonomy they want to go and have sex with multiple people their partner doesn't their partner wants a monogamous relationship so okay what should they do as a relationship? Should the partner who is comfortable only with monogamy respect their partner's bodily autonomy and say, off you go, you go and, you know, have sex with who you please and it'll kill me on the inside, but we'll stay together. 
or like you know so it, it's it's that level of we have you know bodily autonomy intersecting with primal biology cultural norms you know internalized beliefs you know what how wherever it comes from but often often i see the surrogates male partners fears being sort of dismissed or overridden or, or not taken seriously because they are very hard for them to articulate because they're coming from a primal place it just doesn't feel right and i can't put it into words yeah it's and like i think also maybe a fear that that they don't want to come across as being possessive of their their partner mm. they want to be woke, be um, aware enough yeah, yeah, of your own yeah. feelings and not come across as territorial. But actually, like you say, this is so primal that maybe they're not able to articulate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. And that's like, you know, again, you know, one of the purposes of this podcast is for me to sort of take responsibility for putting those awkwardnesses into words, putting those taboos into words, translating, you know, those, those primal feelings so that then, uh, yeah, like, yeah, you can, people can have a recognition of them. People can have an acknowledgement of them. You know, you, you don't sort of have to have the awkward conversations yourself. So, yes, there is, you know, a, a primality that comes with sperm, with ejaculation, intimate sexual relationships. You know, they're, you know, we're talking oxytocin. We're talking pair bonding. We're talking, you know, that. I mean, you know, the same can happen again. You know, it can happen with heterosexual IPs. It can happen with uh, gay IPs. It's like they have their sexual intimacy. It's like, you know, sperm, cum, ejaculation, it plays a role in their intimate sexual relationship as well. So then there's, you know, one of them who's going to go and have his sperm in a woman, you know, and it's like they're, they're a gay male couple. Women aren't part of their sexual intimacy like i call it you know things things you never thought you had to think about you know they have to learn about female biology cycles and and things like this you know this this periods you know there's this whole sort of genre of, of information that they've got to get their heads around and then you know it, again it's the yes it's a technical act of conception so we need an egg and a sperm and a, you know uterus so we put the sperm in the cup and get it in the closest we can to the uterus but then it's like yeah it's, it's all the other <laughs> sort of complexities that come along with facilitating that and again we want it to be awkward it's like uh, because the awkwardness represents the healthy relationship boundaries between um, and within the two couples uh, in the in the surrogacy arrangement. Mm. And I can say it did feel like a sort of awkward intimacy, intimacy between people that I hadn't expected to be intimate with, without there actually being any physical contact. It's an interesting mm -hmm. and complex thing. So if we're accepting that it's going to be awkward what would be like the best practice model for how home inseminations works to respect those boundaries make sure everyone's feeling safe and looked after and also allowing for that space so that the awkwardness doesn't overcome the relationship yeah so i, I think good technical planning so um you know like like work out what equipment are we going to use practice with the equipment it's like, you know, you've got one shot at it, blokes. Um, so make sure the shot is going to go into the right receptacle. So, you know, uh, like, where are you going to do it? My recommendation is always, um, you know, 
at the surrogate's place, intended parents come over. It's like end of the night, surrogate goes to bed, intended parents do the deed, sperm sample, you know, given to the surrogate, and then intended parents go home. So then we don't have that awkward sort of surrogate coming out of the bedroom saying, hi everyone, you know, I've got your, <laughs> got your sperm in my, uh, you know, vagina, um, you know, cup of tea, anybody. You know, you know we, can get, we can get into things that sort of like, you know, the smell of sex, you know, the smell of your sperm on a woman or another woman, you know, it's like going, like, let's, yeah, so you know, good planning, you know, like what equipment are we going to use? Does the equipment work? Turkey basters are, are a concept. They don't actually work. Syringes. Um, Maybe we should know, just talk about that just briefly because I would have lots of people saying, oh, was it the turkey baster? I actually don't yeah. know anyone that has conceived with a turkey baster. And the only turkey baster I've seen was as long as my arm. It, and it was a phallic, a phallic projection. <laughs> That's right. And so actually what I think most surrogates and traditional surrogacy teams talk about is a syringe that you can buy from the chemist. Some surrogates have used a soft cup, which is perhaps something to Google, but it's, uh, it's like a disposable menstrual cup. And others, uh, they've come up with all sorts of things. But generally, it does not involve a turkey baster. It's simpler than that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tiny, tiny amount. It's, it's like it's a teaspoon. Yeah, a turkey baster just doesn't work. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's th things like if you're going to use lubricants, that they're not spermicidal, the, 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 even the plastic using a receptacle, uh, that it doesn't kill the sperm. Um, glass, like, you know, lesbians have traditionally used the salsa jar. Um, you know, it's got a good wide, wide mouth. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, just it's on like, that point, yeah, what I found is that it's the lesbian parenting forums that will have lots of information about home insemination. So if you're searching for information about how it all works, the lesbian parenting forums are where to find it because they've been doing it a lot longer, really, and they know their they stuff. They are the experts. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right. They are the experts on this because they've been doing it for decades. So, the other so thing I think lots of people forget, lots of people actually don't understand the mechanics of conception and that things like ovulation and timing are really important. You can't just do insemination at all times of the month. It's generally in a four or five day period when the surrogate is fertile. And to find that out, she may be tracking her cycle. And she can also do that with ovulation test kits to pinpoint the time of ovulation and then to do home inseminations at that optimum time. Yeah. So again, it's that good preparation, the good technical preparation. You know, what equipment are we going to use? Is, is the equipment going to work? Have we practiced with the equipment? Where are we going to do it? Whose house? What time of day? Optimising the, the chances of conception. You know, I've had surrogates who use uh, apps to, to track their cycle, but then, you know, don't fall pregnant. And then when they go and actually get uh, you know, blood testing of their hormone levels or, or other sort of measurements, actual measurements of when they're ovulating, they find they're a week out of whack. So they were never going to fall pregnant. You know, they, were, they were, thought they were trying to conceive during that window, never going to happen because they weren't actually ovulating. Their, their cycle didn't fit the standard algorithms. So doing your know, medical screening, make, you can do things like screening for STDs, taking vitamins, anything to do, you know, so that that time you're going to spend in that window, make sure it's the right window. You know, make sure you've got, you optimize your chances because it's a, it's a big commitment for, for four people to basically sort of 
spend four or five nights together once a month trying to trying to do this yeah it, it, like it's very disruptive to everybody's schedule so you want to be giving it the best chances to happen you know you don't want to spend three months everybody putting you know putting their lives on hold to find out it was never going to happen because you know, it can be months you know it can be three months six months 12 months just for this to happen even with the very best of conditions i think um, that's a, so probably yeah, a good time to also talk about the importance of doing some health checks before you try that uh, the person providing the sperm perhaps should get a sperm analysis done this is all optional there's no requirement to do it but i do think it's a good idea if you're going through the process where your surrogate is trying to fall pregnant, then we should all be doing the best we can to make sure we are healthy and fertile. And that for the, for the dads involved, that that's making sure their, their sperm is healthy, maybe taking multivitamins. For the surrogate, taking multivitamins. And depending on what her fertility has been like, whether she might get a fertility test, getting STD checks is probably a good idea. That's an awkward one that people might not want to ask for, but I think it's really important if you're doing home inseminations, there's no STD checking that they would do at an IVF clinic. If you replicate what the IVF clinic would have done, then doing blood tests and, IV and, and STD checks and uh, fertility tests is a good idea so that everyone kind of knows that they're looking out for each other and being respectful to what everyone is committing to. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. So again, I would introduce to surrogacy because it's simpler, uh, but it actually comes with enormous complexities because a lot of the things that just would have been sort of done, like you said, routinely you know, through IVF, you've now got to think about them and how you sort of replicate those sort of medical safety issues or you know, technical issues. So, um, so yeah, and I think, yeah, so how, how do you navigate the awkwardness? Everybody I speak to says a lot of wine seems to be the, yeah, the common experience. I think a good sense of humour um, is essential really to sort of see it as a bit of an altered dimension that you temporarily go into. So you've planned it well so that, you know, it's going to, the process, the technical process is going to flow. We're not going to get to the, the thing of going, oops, he missed the cup, abort, abort. Uh, we're not going to get to the thing of going, oh, you know, the kids, forgot we had the kids that night or something like that. Um, so, so therefore, it's to sort of go, okay, we're going to go into a bit of an altered dimension, and, and, you know, awkward altered dimension, which is temporary, you know, to get this done and, yeah, let's make it fun or silly or ridiculous but yeah embrace the awkwardness welcome the awkwardness healthy awkwardness and then we're going to go home and everybody have a good night's sleep and then yeah we can wake up the next day and go back to our normal interactions and things like that so uh, i think yeah to sort of yeah you know have some sort of containment around uh, around that sort of uh, separated off yeah you know, it, from it that. Feel like also, that i know for me was that we would do the attempts at um, pregnancy and then there would be a gap where we wouldn't really spend time together for at least a few days and then when we would see each other next we wouldn't actually talk about it it would actually just be mm. you know back to business as usual and normal interactions we're not talking about what we did five days ago that yeah, it, yeah, how it, sexy was that? Sort of yeah. Back to the relationship. yeah, you're not going to talk about how, how much fun it was because it wasn't awkward. No. Do you feel like traditional surrogacy does cross so many of those boundaries? And I felt perhaps that uh, in some ways, once you've crossed those boundaries, there's no going back. Like you now know each other on a different level. 
but that's not actually the level that you want to maintain in terms of your ongoing relationship. That's not, you don't want to keep going back to that as being the standard. Yeah. For relationship. yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it's a good indicator because we're talking primal intimacy and stuff. It's like, it's a, it's actually a good indicator. Like, can you within the awkwardness, uh, handle, like, does the intimacy feel okay? If that level of, intimacy if you suddenly go you know what when push comes to shove i can't do this level of intimacy with these people that's called a red flag it's like because you're going if you get pregnant you're going to have a whole lot more intimacy some serious intimacy once you once you're pregnant again you're dependent on each other you there's no there's no turning back there's no walking away from that it's like surrogate you know a surrogate's potentially going to be giving birth with her intended parents in the room much more intimate, vulnerable, primal than home insemination, potentially having surgery with her intended parents in the room, intimate, vulnerable, <laughs> like human, <laughs> it's like much more intense than home insemination. So again, to be able to touch into that intimacy, uh, even temporarily, is a good indicator of true the true intimacy that's going to be required at other points and milestones along the surrogacy journey. So if we go back to the home inseminations, what would, we're saying that it perhaps should happen at the surrogate's home and then uh, when the intended parents are finished, they go and the surrogate stays. Is there anything we need to do to sort of, again, sort of protect that safety of everyone involved and maintain the awkwardness for want of a better phrase? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's individual choices as to location. You know, some people might, use, some people use a hotel room. So it's, it's nobody's home turf. Uh, it's like, again, some people might not want people wanking in their bathroom. Um, so, you know, there might be considerations of, you know, kids and babysitting and things like that. Um, yeah, so I think it's, it's just to sort of think through the consequences you know think through the process it's not like oh well, that'll be inconvenient because i'll be able to pop you know take lunch off you know i'll, I'll be able to go out in my lunch break and then we can do it like that it's like you know, to sometimes sort of uh, yeah can don't uh, prioritize convenience over uh consequences of that convenience um, so yeah keeping everybody safe I think again healthy awkwardness but, but like I was saying before it's like nobody feeling violated by transgressions or distortions of intimacy if someone can't do it then don't do it don't ignore these signals because it could lead to a fundamental irreparable violation of the intimacy of your relationship that it's it's like someone just feels betrayed and they can't get over it so therefore your relationship might never recover from it so again not to sort of go oh it'll be all right it doesn't matter it's like you know listen to these signals you know it's like the what's more important it's like yeah if, if someone's saying it just doesn't feel right for me i just can't do it i just can't do it and i just can't do it don't do it would you say in those circumstances that if traditional surrogacy was still on the table, then they should do it through an IVF clinic? Is it the home insemination that's the problem or is it a bigger picture that traditional surrogacy is the problem? 
it could be it could be a range of things it could be yeah it could be the genetics you know it, it could be that it's the surrogate's egg and genetics it could be yeah you know the yeah that we need a little bit more uh medicalization and clinicalization uh you know we need we need a, a person to facilitate that uh it, it could be despite that it could be sort of yeah intimacy intimacy boundaries which feel like they're being being violated which is about the relationship and stuff like that so again it's it's things to explore it's to sort of listen listen to those those instincts um and explore them so that everybody feels comfortably uncomfortable <laughs> it's, it's like yeah we want it awkward but not uh not destructive it's like not vile, not, not, not a sense of sort of violation, betrayal, uh, disgust or something which is going to be, you know, like traumatising at, at an individual or a relationship level. I'm reflecting on my own experience and because it took us about five months to fall pregnant, uh, there was a point where we decided to have a break for a month. And I think that's really important that it might be different from gestational surrogacy with an IVF clinic that you if you spend four or five nights every single month trying to fall pregnant then that's a lot of time that everyone is putting energy into that and logistics and all the arrangements and everything and that taking a break from that can be really important to perhaps readjust back to a regular relationship where you're not talking about conception where you're not arranging for home inseminations and respecting the two separate relationships of the, the partner teams the surrogate and her partner and the intended parents and reconnecting together without having to worry about home inseminations. I think for my partner and I, that was really important for us to have that opportunity where we, we weren't um, having to accommodate um, our intended parents four nights a month to you know, make a baby for them. I was gonna ask perhaps about when you've got gay intended parents and there's two blokes involved and two opportunities to provide sperm, would you say there's a best practice in terms of how the conception happens and whether there should be, would you say that the teams should pick one biological father or alternating? And if they were to alternate, is there sort of a, a best way to do that to, again, look after everyone's safety and needs? Yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, you know, that's, that's a, a big multi-dimensional question mm. um, because, yeah, so sometimes... And it depends on on what's what's driving the decision to do that. So uh, sometimes what can be driving the decision to do that is an inability, you know, to resolve um, issues around who who is going to be the, the biological father, you know, of the child. Unsolved, it's unresolved. You know, it, like a, a decision can't be made, so therefore it's sort of put in the hands of fate. Um, but often, you know, often that inability to, to uh, solve or resolve that, you know, is has its foundations in in fear and shame and things like that. So, you know, if, if that's the, the the reason why a decision wasn't made and it's left in the hands of fate, all you do is like just delay having to deal with that baggage. So, um, for for sometimes sometimes for people, you know, it's like they are really just equal 
you know, it's like either would be delighted, you know, if, and often I, I see, yeah, you know, there's almost a delight, you know, it's like, a, wouldn't that be great if, if it was, you know, my, my partner's genetics and, and, you know, we can have a child who was a little him, you know, like the other one's like, a, no, it'd be even better if I could have a little you, which is just that it's the actual, it's the absolute manifestation of the making love, you know, of, of creating a family. It's like going, I get to have a, a little, you know, the person that I love, you know, the manifestation of that. And it's almost a sense of, of like the person whose genetics it is, is going to miss out on seeing, you know, a, a little version of their loved partner running around. You know, it's almost like the person who wins is the loser uh, in that regard. Um, so, yes, that, again, there's more clarity in that. Sometimes it can be gay guys choose it, you know, oh, you're the older one. You know, it's like, well, okay, is that, let's have a look at sperm quality. Is that still a realistic proposal? Yeah, so, you know, but again, that can come with um, emotional consequences. There's also sort of, you know, the, the identity of the child. Like, uh, so if we conceive a child, uh, you know, let's say we, we decide to take turns, Thursday one, Thursday, Friday two, whatever, um, then, yeah, when and how are we going to find out? the biological parentage of the child and then how is what's the consequences of that in then having to then adjust to that identity and like i said sometimes it's just then delaying like being blindsided by the you know emo, the primal emotionality of of that we are, what's then the plans to disclose you know to the child is it driven by shame and secrecy so therefore we're going to keep it secret from the child because all the reasons that come up for that. How are we going to tell families? So it's, yeah, it's, it's a very complex issue. And, and, you know, it's the type of thing which is best sort of, if, so, if someone was using, you know, uh, gestational surrogacy, say, you know, a gay couple using that, they, you know, they're going to need an egg donor. So that's the type of discussion and conversation which is going to take place uh, in the egg donation counselling. But in traditional surrogacy, it's easy to sort of miss discussing those aspects because we're sort of we've sort of made the decision you know we're talking about traditional surrogacy um so i really think yeah decisions there's no right or wrong ways to do it they have to be mindful decisions which are made for the right reasons and with an understanding of the implications and a primacy on the best interest of the child who's going to have to you know deal with the consequences of that mm. I think it's uh, really good to think about too is that we're talking about hypothetical children and what's in their best interests given that they don't actually exist yet. Yeah. So I think you're right when you say that sometimes people think that traditional surrogacy is just an easier version of surrogacy because they don't have to involve a clinic. So when we're talking about the awkwardness, is there anything else about the awkwardness that we can kind of prepare for or think about before we do traditional surrogacy to try and sort of appreciate that it's a bit more complicated than perhaps people think. Yeah, okay. So th there's a couple of things that I talk about in counselling sessions, which is, is like sort of creating a private space amongst the awkward intimacy, I suppose. Um, and that's for the surrogate side. If, if we look it's around the surrogate masturbating while she's doing the, the insemination. So, uh, so that is something that research, you know, science sort of is inconclusive. You know, is that beneficial or not? Should it be masturbation, 
you know, before insemination, masturbation, or, you know, so we're talking masturbation and orgasm, uh, you know, orgasm post-conception, what's the best statistics on, on that? Not enough research done. Um, it's women's bodies. So, so I, you know, so I'll tend to have conversations with a group to sort of go, this is the information for your surrogate and she gets to choose. This is her choice as to what she does with this information. So it's, it's creating a private space for the surrogate. And if we, so the way I put it is like a, let's think about the sort of the biology and mechanics of, you know, conception. So uh, we're sort of, doing home insemination but we're sort of trying to replicate sexual reproduction you know uh we're talking things like the act of sex creates blood flow it creates uh ph changes you know in a woman's vagina which optimizes the chances uh of conception mucus ph blood flow so things like you know masturbation and orgasm it's like yeah, they can increase blood flow, increase secretion of body fluids, create a pH environment, acidity, neutral, neutrality balance, you know, which is basically nature's put there to facilitate conception. So there we go. I've had that awkward uh, discussion for you. Thank you. you know, <laughs> the, prov the provision of information for a surrogate. So then the intended parents don't need to ask her if she's going to do that because, again, the science is inconclusive. You know, that's a completely personal choice for her as to what she feels she would, she would like to do. How would she like to use that information? Does that make sense to her or not? So the other sort of weirdly awkward one as well is, okay, so what happens behind closed doors uh, between the intended parents, be they a heterosexual couple or a homosexual couple? So... Again, in surrogacy, everything, it's, it's like I call it you win some, you lose some, okay? So they don't get to have sex behind closed doors, in the privacy of their own home and make a baby, okay? They have to sacrifice that, okay? But then do they wish to bring in an element of making love, a sanctity, a romance, an intimacy, a ritual, around this act of wanking into a cup, which might actually be the act of ejaculation that results in the conception of their child. Again, this is for them to do pri privately. They don't, you know, this is not what you tell your surrogate about how the sperm got in the cup. So again, this is information that then within the privacy of your relationship, you can discuss as to whether you see it as a sheer mechanical act of producing a sperm sample or whether you see it as an act of love, an act of potential uh, conception. And that might then influence what you do behind the closed doors of your surrogate's bathroom. <laughs> I'm glad you Just went deep because that's always <laughs> those conversations that most people couldn't have or have thought about but haven't actually had the courage to ask about. So thank you for that. That was amazing. Did you have anything else to add about traditional surrogacy and the complexity of traditional surrogacy in home inseminations? No, I think there's a whole other podcast for us, Sarah, in terms of then the uh, relationships, genetic, emotional, social, parental um, re relationships of 
traditional surrogacy compared to gestational surrogacy, but I think that's a whole other podcast for us to do. We'll save that for another day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you would like to find out more information about surrogacy, you can have a look at my website at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can listen to more podcasts on the website or on Apple Podcasts.